morning and welcome to Rising. So just like past incidents similar to the Uvalde, Texas Elementary School massacre, there have been, in this case as well, new updates and revisions to the facts. So we'd like to tell you what's come to light so far since last we addressed this issue. Yesterday, Texas officials said all victims had been identified and their families notified. One 10-year-old girl is in serious condition and two others are in good condition. The shooter's grandmother is reportedly in serious condition after being shot in the head. Texas Director of Public Safety also confirmed that there was indeed a police officer on campus at Robb Elementary who exchanged gunfire with Salvador Ramos. That is when the shooter ran inside the school, barricaded himself in a class, and began firing. While the tragedy has sparked a raw renewal over gun reform, questions of police competence have also arisen after more facts have come to light. NBC News correspondent Tom Winter tweeted, quote, For the second time, it appears the information initially provided by Texas law enforcement officials was wrong. The shooter was not stopped by the first officer that encountered him. He wasn't pinned down, but rather appears to have locked himself in a classroom. According to AP News, the shooter went in a classroom and locked the door. Police on scene actually left him there. When Border Patrol showed up, they couldn't break down the door. And after about 40 minutes to an hour, they got a member of the school staff to unlock it with a key. Senior reporter at Vice News, Tess Owens, wrote about the discrepancies in the timeline given by officials. And she joins us now to discuss the timeline further. Welcome, Tess, to the show. Thank you so much for having me. So, Tess, we saw some shocking images and accounts of parents being stopped by the police um, from being kept from saving their own children, going as far as pinning some parents to the ground. The AP reports that parents and onlookers at the scene urged police to actually do something and breach the building during that full 40-minute killing spree. Uh, But according to the report, officers didn't go in. Uh, We have a pretty long clip of the timeline given by Congressman Gonzalez to Jake Tapper. Let's watch that and get your reaction uh, on the other side. Pinned down. So uh, I have two questions about this, and maybe you can clear this up. How was the gunman able to get into the school if the resource officer had engaged with him, but no gunfire was exchanged? How did he get in? Yeah, so it, it started at his home. You know, he he tragically uh, shoots his, his grandmother, and then he gets in a vehicle and he drives to the school. It's, it's less than a mile away, so it's really right around the corner. And as he comes to the school, he, he wrecks. He kind of go, goes into this ditch, and it's when he got into that ditch is when law enforcement was, was, was called and engaged. You know, so uh, that, that's part of the initial contact. Uh, it was no firing uh, that I understand. He actually enters through the back of one of the buildings, through the, uh, the teacher parking lot, if you will. He immediately enters one room, and then essentially that's when the police, uh, the, the law enforcement officer, because it's not just police officers, it's, it's sheriffs, it's border patrol agents. I mean, everybody came together. People are not even in, even in this county, and they basically cornered him into one room. There are hundreds of children in that school. Part of the story, there's a, there's a, a lieutenant named Javier Martinez engages this, this uh, uh, assailant. He takes fire. He actually was wounded. You know, it's tragic to see so many children be murdered, but it, this could have been a whole lot worse. People like Javier Martinez and Chief uh, Arredondo, they saved hundreds of lives. So that's where well, you see him get pinned in. Well, he was pinned, but just to be clear, he's pinned down or pinned in in a classroom where he was slaughtering kids, right? I mean, is, is that what you mean by pinned down? 
I, I'm on, I, I understand that he went in that classroom and he begins to fire. He begins to murder people, starting with, the, with that, that wonderful teacher that was defending her students, and he doesn't stop. The police officer actually engages him. Uh, Javier uh, uh, Martinez engages him. He kind of uh, takes fire uh, through the door, and then it stops, and he barricades himself in. That's where there's kind of a lull in the action. All of it, I understand, lasted about an hour. But this is where there's kind of a 30-minute lull. They feel as if they got him barricaded in. The rest of the students in the school are now leaving. You know, they're trying to get people out uh, to safety, and, and this assailant is barricaded in. It, it, it's moments later or, or, or minutes later when they breach it, and then ultimately a Border Patrol agent is the one that uh, neutralizes this assailant. All right. It still seems like a lot of time that the police were outside the classroom and the shooter was inside the classroom where there were kids. Okay, Tess, there, there's a lot there that people are going to be frustrated by. What does it mean to engage someone? It seems like a, a careful avoidance of the word, you know, shot at. You know, we've discovered that the person was not wearing the protective gear that he was initially represented as having worn. How do we end up here? And can you unpack a little bit how the information has been trickling out and why there was so much misunderstanding yesterday? So the, the timeline is all over the place and I just, they cannot seem to get their story straight of what happened. You know, I started out yesterday trying to just sort of build a simple timeline of, you know, the facts of the time that he arrived at school, the time that he, he in, in quote, engaged with a particular officer. Um, the version of events that I had understood it yesterday following the press conference was that, um, you know, 1120, you know, he, 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 he texted a girl that morning saying that he was going to kill his grandmother. 11.20, he texts that girl saying that he had shot his grandmother in the head and that he was going to shoot up an elementary school. Um, his grandmother reportedly called 911, but I'm not sure when that was. He got in his truck, drove a short distance to the school, turned into a ditch that was sort of adjacent to school property. I, I looked at it on, a, on Google Earth. It's about sort of a width of a football field, 100, maybe 100 yards away from school buildings. Um, someone called 911 to report the crash. And then this is where it gets fuzzy. Um, DPS Director Steve McCraw said yesterday at the press conference um, held by Texas officials that there was a school resource officer who had um, who had learned about the 911 reports and saw him and attempted to confront him and maybe had engaged him, but that was very unclear. Um, the gunman went inside anyway, and from what I understood, then two more or a few more officers then showed up and that there was some exchange of gunfire and you know, numerous uh, people with DPS had said that those officers sustained injuries. Um, and then this gets to the bit where the shooter ends up in the classroom. Abbott, uh, Governor Greg Abbott had described the classroom as one that was internally connected to another classroom. Um, so D some DPS spokespersons had said that he had barricaded himself in there McCraw used language which gave me pause, which was that the cops, he said twice that the cops had been responsible, the police had been responsible for containing uh, the shooter in a classroom. So my question after seeing that was, you know, was the classroom empty? Were there children in the classroom that he was contained into? And how long was he in that classroom? Mm -hmm. And that's what we're starting to learn a bit more. We know from AP's reporting, for example, that police had set up a perimeter around the school and that there were these you know, anguished scenes of, of parents who wanted to go in there and feeling like the police weren't doing enough. And the the, the, the Texas officials have been very 
opaque with the timeline, um, with how long, I think they said, oh, 40 right. to an hour that it went on for. Right, and at no point uh, has anyone suggested that the classroom he was, that he was pinned in was empty, and we know the victims were all from the same classroom, so that suggests that, in fact, he, like, he was pinned there with the victims. So the idea that it would take so long to get the door open, like as people are being murdered in real time, is, I mean, look, it is what it is, but it, the, the way it's being spun immediately as some triumph of law enforcement coordination and resources, like by that, that guest Jake Tapper was interviewing, when, when well, no, <laughs> at, you know, at the least, it, it looks like that, that was not a great thing to have him trapped or whatever in that classroom. That's where the people were being killed. Uh, you know, obviously, and then we're see, starting to see footage of people outside wanting to go in and help the, the police. And, and maybe it's not a good idea for them to do that, but the police, instead of you know, trying to get this door open, trying to track down an employee, how could that take an hour to track down an employee who can open this door when, and when they're, they're putting more effort into keeping people from intervening? Uh, that, look, I think that's going to very reasonably make people quite upset to learn if that was the case, what, that's what was going on. I also think, I mean, just the timeline, I've, I've covered a lot of mass shootings, um, unfortunately, in the last few years, and school shootings in particular as well. And, um, you know, there's, details are always a little fuzzy. They, you know, narratives can shift. But one thing that often is quite consistent is time. Um, you know, they can say pretty clearly when the shooting mm. started, when it stopped, when police arrived on scene, when a shooter was taken into custody or killed. Those are details that are usually pretty stable and so the fact that we don't we're not really getting a clear time that you know they're saying oh the shooter arrived in the school and then a tactical unit arrived and killed the shooter but what they're not saying is that an hour passed in that time frame and they're not saying what happened in that hour um so i think that's going to be something that is going to be heavily scrutinized um i hope in the in the days and weeks to come right yeah, and, it, mm -hmm. yeah and they initially said he was wearing uh body armor i think we even read that uh, detail off yesterday on the show. And that, from what I understand now, is, is not actually the case. He was wearing um, sort of uh, gear that allows you to carry extra uh, ammo, but, but is not uh, protective from being shot. That's right. I mean, I, I, I think that that could have been, a mis you know, somebody might have, who, who placed that 911 call might have made a mistake or misspoke. So that that's one where, one detail which I guess I'm sort of slightly mm -hmm. more not sympathetic to, but I understand how that could could have could have been misconstrued. Um, but I do think that just the you know the the, the the shifting timeline has been has really really been giving me pause. And I think also the you know the fact that Governor Greg Abbott so far his the narrative that he has been sort of pushing is that this could have been so much worse. I think he actually said yesterday he gave a sort of bizarre. I found it slightly bizarre. Um, glass half full, which is that, you know, this was horrible, but his words were, it could have been worse. And I think this is going to be what we see from these Texas officials trying to justify their actions because they're going to say more children, more teachers would have been killed had they not done what they did. Yeah, I think that there are a lot of folks who would accept some of the mistakes in terms of how the information trickled out as honest mistakes made in good faith. But for what seems to be a, an affirmative push to characterize everything in a really sunny, sanguine light that seems out of touch with what has happened, no matter where fault and blame lies. And so 
that that's why you start to have people asking is there a rumor that there's body armor worn as a way to exculpate police officers officers for perhaps not shooting the person since there were apparently all of these different kinds of law enforcement officers on the scene who had quote engaged him before going into the room you know how was the door ultimately open i'm not sure if we know that if it took you know 40 minutes to an hour to figure out how to break down a door there have been images of you know SWAT teams and all of these what seem to be almost excessive resources for such a small town um there and it seems kind of incredulous that if you have a SWAT team in the vicinity, it would take so long just to break down a door at an elementary school, much less find a, a key to open it. I mean, I think that, that cluster of things right. is why people are so skeptical. Do we know, do we know anything How about the How long does it take to, uh, for the cops to open a door in a no-knock raid? Exactly, <laughs> right. Very true. And I think all of this, I mean, for in terms of the messaging coming from Texas officials is that you know, a lot of sort of gun rights activists and frankly Republicans will often push the line in the wake of mass shootings that, you know, the good guy with a gun myth that, you know, had there been a good Samaritan who, with a gun in the vicinity of a shooting that, you know, tragedy could have been averted, lives could have been saved. In this case, we had multiple officers, law enforcement officers with guns who were on the scene and they failed to prevent one person, one 18 year old uh, from killing 19 children and two adults. Yeah. I, I think a part of my skepticism of the early sort of law enforcement did everything right, and it could have been so much worse narrative, because I remember Parkland, uh, the Marjorie Stoneman Douglas shooting, where it turned out that actually the school resource officer hid. He cowered as the shooting was going on. He had been trained by the sheriff department, a, a, a horrifically corrupt department that gave bad training and bad guidance and and also knew about this you know this that kid uh, Nicholas Cruz had been reported to law enforcement he'd been reported to the FBI it was the see something say something mentality people saw something and said something the police just obviously did not take the right steps in this case do we know yet I've been trying to find this out and and not uh, totally coming up with the right uh, with, with the answers but maybe something happened uh, overnight do we know the extent to which he was known to law enforcement, I've, I've, uh, previous to the shooting, uh, I've, I've seen some indication that maybe there were cops um, at his house when he when he moved from his parents to his grandmother's house. Uh, any anything like that? That's something that I'm still trying to look into as well. And as advice news has been looking into, um, you know, we cover one of the, the main subject areas we cover at Vice News is extremism, and so we've been looking to see what you know in terms of motivation, whether there was any nexus there, or whether he was perhaps inspired by previous school shooters. You know, there's a whole online culture um, where that's a thing, for example. And so I think, you know, he, I'm not sure exactly about the degree to which he was known by law enforcement, but certainly he, he had a habit of posting troubling things on, on various social media accounts. Um, you know, he was posting guns on his Instagram and he was messaging this this girl that he'd met um, on a on an app called Ubo. Um, but as far as kind of what police, you know, what law enforcement did or didn't know or whether there were any sort of whether he'd been reported to the FBI or anything like that, we, we, we still don't really know that. You, you mentioned that there was a call by the grandmother, a 911 call. What do we know about that, the content of the call or what, if anything, the response was from law enforcement? That was something that I learned yesterday um, afternoon. I was trying to piece together again the timeline. And 
you know, when those first calls came in, it's not entirely clear. Initially, they said um, that the first calls came in at 11.20 a.m., um, reporting that he'd, you know, crashed his car into a ditch. Um, but then I think it was the Washington Post who reported on these messages um, that he had exchanged with this this young woman in Germany, where he had just said that I, you know, where he'd written to her at 11.20 I just shot my grandmother and I'm going to go shoot up in elementary school. So there's a little bit of a timeline discrepancy. It's possible that maybe the 1120 calls came from the grandmother. Um, again, these are more sort of just fuzzy details. Um, but what is clear, I think that he was in the school vicinity or you know, in the area of Rob Elementary School, I'd say 1130, 1145 a.m. Um, yeah. And then what we do know is that he was, the shooter was taken in, or they said taken into custody. He was killed. Um, by 1 p.m. Yeah, and, and Abbott said something about uh, the the right that he posted on Facebook that he was that he killed his grandmother was going to uh, do a school shooting. But then I, I later understood, or at least Facebook has claimed that those were private messages, so not the the kind of thing that they're routinely uh, screening, which I think most most people, most of us civil libertarians don't want Facebook routinely reading all our DMs just in case there's something like this. But does, does that explanation, uh, is that satisfactory? Yeah, um, I mean, I think it, it it's seemed to have happened also. I mean, he made those messages within a, you know, an hour period. Um, it seems like in that morning, I'm not sure what his longer history was like posting on Facebook, whether he actually posted, a, you know, more alarming content on his public, you know, if there was a public facing aspect of it. Um, again, these are all sort of details that I think that we're probably going to find out down the road. Mm. Well, Tess, thank you so much for joining us. Thank you so much for having me. Yep. And we'll have more rising right after this. Brianna, what's on your radar? Well, in the wake of Tuesday's school shooting, the bought and paid for corporatists who control our government were quick to play the blame game. Before the facts had come out, folks on both sides of the aisle were looking to confirm their priors. This was expected. It always happens. And it never makes anyone look very good. Two days after the shooting, initial claims the shooter was wearing body armor and thus was able to get by heroic police officers were debunked. It seems now that the police officers may have been negligent, not only in their failure to stop the shooter, but in barricading the shooter into a fourth grade classroom for about an hour where he proceeded to shoot everyone inside. Perhaps the most craven lie in the wake of the tragedy came from Representative Paul Gosar of Arizona, who propagated a baseless rumor that the shooter was a trans leftist. Some confusion around these events is expected, of course, and Gosar hardly represents the norm among average conservative media consumers just trying to make sense of a senseless tragedy. But there's one claim that doesn't seem to be going away, one that oddly tries to move the scene of the crime over 1,000 miles north from Texas to Chicago. Now, if I were Texas Governor Greg Abbott and I had spent my career advocating for lenient gun laws because I believed, as a matter of principle, that the Second Amendment requires that 18-year-olds be able to buy a gun on their 18th birthday, I'd simply own it. It is a technically defensible position, even though in the wake of 19 dead elementary school students, many people are debating whether it's a morally defensible one. But instead of taking responsibility for the consequences of his political position, he is blaming others. 
When asked about his stance on gun laws yesterday, he said this. There are, quote, real gun laws in Chicago. There are, quote, real gun laws in New York. There are real gun laws in California. I hate to say this, but there are more people who were shot every weekend in Chicago than there are in schools in Texas. And we need to realize that, that people who think that, well, maybe if we could just implement tougher gun laws, it's going to solve it. Chicago and L.A. and New York disproved that thesis. And so if you're looking for a real solution, Chicago teaches that what you're talking about is not a real solution. Now, this argument, it, it bothered me for a couple of reasons. First, I sort of think it's cowardly to try to downplay the consequences of the gun policies you're enthusiastic about, at least between school shootings. Every policy, even those I heartily support, create winners and losers. When you're governing a society filled with people who have diverse needs and interests, you're constantly doing balancing tests to try to make sure what you're doing causes more good than harm. But of course, there are always downsides, and the responsible adult thing to do is to simply own them. When you don't, you run the real risk of not accounting for all the harms at stake and being mistaken in your cost-benefit analysis. If you can't acknowledge that the consequence of lax gun laws is that sometimes school shooters make dead kids, then you're not going to be able to accurately assess the interests of everyone in the community you're responsible for. And that's dangerous. We might disagree on the underlying policy, but you cannot ignore the potential consequences. And do you know who demonstrated the kind of honesty I could respect in this situation? It's Bernie Sanders. One of my favorite political moments from a 2017 CNN Obamacare debate it featured Bernie asking, answering the question from a salon owner who asked him to confront the consequences of uh, Obamacare expansion. She said she wanted to open new stores but would be constrained by having to provide her workers with health insurance. Bernie didn't dodge the question. She didn't evade this direct interrogation from a voter. He simply owned the consequences of that policy. Take a listen to this. Under the controls of Obamacare, my business has been restricted from expansion. I'm from Fort Worth, Texas. I own five fantastic, fantastic Sam's hair salons. We employ between 45 and 48 employees. My original plan was to open more salons and employ more people. However, under Obamacare, I am restricted um, because I, it requires me to uh, furnish uh, health insurance if I employ more than 50 people. Unfortunately, the profit margin in my industry is very thin, and I'm not a wealthy person, so it's impossible for me to grow my business. Um, my question to you, Senator Sanders, is how do I grow my business? How do I employ more Americans without either raising the prices to my customers or lowering wages to my employees? Uh, let, me be, let me give you an answer you will not be happy with. Uh, and that is, I think uh, that for businesses that employ 50 people or more, given the nature of our dysfunctional health care system right now, where most people do get their health insurance through the places that they work, I'm sorry, 
I think that in America today, everybody should have health care. And if you have more than 50 people, you know what? I think I'm afraid to tell you, but I think you will have to provide health care. So my- <laughs> Bernie said, look, you're not going to like it. <laughs> but workers need health insurance more than business owners need to increase profits. That's his pitch, at least, of course, in the Obamacare context. In a Medicare for all world, businesses would save a ton of money from having to pay employer-based health insurance at all. It wouldn't be on their plate at all. But look, the point is you don't have to agree with Bernie. Many people who are not ideologically aligned with Bernie, however, respect him because he owns the consequences of his policies and is honest about his redistributive goals. Abbott, on the other hand, seems confused about what personal responsibility means. Not only does he seem unwilling to state that repeated school shootings are the price he's willing to pay for his gun policy, he shifts focus to Chicago. And he's not the only one that's been playing the Chicago game. Here's Sean Hannity yesterday. We had 28 people shot in Chicago last week. By the way, that's on the low side for a typical weekend there. No one on the left ever talks about it. They don't seem to care. Now, both men are right about something. There is a severe gun problem in Chicago, just like there is in Texas. It's devastating communities, and it's important to address address the mass proliferation of guns in the state. But here's the problem. They aren't talking about city and state legislatures who control gun policy in Chicago are limited by the fact that a full 60% of the guns taken by Chicago PD are from other neighboring states, red states with more lenient gun policies, states like Indiana, Mississippi, and Wisconsin. Look, I I wanna be really clear that this blame game is gross in its entirety. I don't want to be doing this. It doesn't help us solve the problem of these horrific school shootings, but the lies being spread by Abbott and other corporate politicos disguise the serious flaws in a state-by-state approach to issues like gun violence. We just have to be honest about this. If Hannity really cares about folks being killed by gun violence in Chicago, he should consider backing federal legislation to address address gun trafficking from other states. He might also reserve some critique for eight out of 10 of the deadliest cities in America for gun violence that are in fact red states. In fact, so many of the guns that end up in the hands of gang members and felons in Chicago come from one particular Indiana gun store 10 miles from the Chicago border, that the city of Chicago sued it, alleging that it ignored suspicious behavior like large volume purchases, cash payments, and staggered visits that are uh, done to avoid multiple sale reporting requirements. So whatever you think of that lawsuit or Chicago gun laws, it is dishonest to ignore the red state roots of much of Chicago's gun problem while opportunistically using Chicago to deflect from the murdered children in your own state. Doing so is not going to help us collaboratively solve the problem. To do that, we have to be honest about the consequences of our actions. Now, one last thing about Abbott's statement, he argued that tougher laws like the ones in Chicago wouldn't solve the problem. And I've explained why it's not clear that that's even true, poor state borders, muddy the waters, but even if he were right, I struggle to see how this isn't an argument against almost any law. What if I told someone concerned about illegal border crossings that there was no point passing tougher immigration legislation because desperate people were going to cross the border anyway? Would Abbott accept that logic? Pro-choice advocates often point out that banning abortion won't stop abortion. It will just lead to less safe abortions. 
but this argument doesn't seem to convince those who want to ban abortions. Now, I'm open to the idea personally that a whole range of reforms outside of gun restrictions are necessary to address our gun violence problem. There's obviously something going on with young men, and it feels like the root of so many problems we're dealing with now. The so-called disinformation crisis, hyperpolarization, and racial violence like we saw in Buffalo a little over a week ago all stem from a diminishing sense of American community. We don't trust each other, and we're growing increasingly convinced that we have to shuffle through life on our own, defensive and protective of only our own. But the advancements we've made as a community, as humans, and as Americans haven't come by treating our fellow men as strangers. We have to learn to trust each other, and that means being honest about the limitations of gun control policy, being open to a yes and approach that targets many of the factors at play here, including mental health care, and owning that there are consequences, there are consequences to allowing kids to buy AR-15s on their 18th birthdays. I kind of want to talk about that Bernie clip. (laughs) (laughs) Salon owner wants to offer a... uh, Here's what I will pay you to work in my salon. Here's what I I will give you. The salon... Employee says that that's fine for me, and you and Bernie want to come here and say, "Nope, nope, this is not okay. This is this yeah, deal I mean, you worked out not I, not I, satisfactory." I understand that you're a libertarian and that you don't believe in a minimum wage of any kind, and you should send children down the mines and all of that. But as an American community, we've established there should be certain workplace standards that there's minimum wages, that we have uh, OSHA protections and the like, and that health insurance is such a basic right. If you cannot afford, she has over 50, she's borderline on having 50 employees. This is not the tiniest business in the world. If she wants to grow, then she has to be able to provide health insurance, not have this little cabal of 50 people who are uninsured. Now, again, Bernie's plan is not Obamacare. He was having to defend Obamacare in that debate. Under Bernie's plan, business owners are extremely benefited because Medicare for All takes that obligation off of employers entirely. You can start a business with any number of employees you want, and business owners, employers are no longer responsible for their employees' health care. We're getting at some real uh, philosophical differences between you and I, (laughs) because I'm hearing a lot of the things you're saying. Anyway, yeah, right. the, The government cannot stop abortion. It cannot stop immigrants. It cannot stop people from accessing drugs or alcohol or having sex. It can't keep drugs out of prisons. It can't keep drugs out of prisons. How is it going to keep guns off the streets without some kind of authoritarian regime? Yeah. So this is my point at the end, that I think that there are a cluster of things that people need to do. And right. be honest that no one program is oftentimes going to be the issue. If we're talking about immigration, I think part of the frustration that leftists have is that we're not necessarily naive to the consequences of some Im- uh, immigration on some of the the most vulnerable, low-income tranches of American society. But when you ignore the the role that American interventionism has played in creating horrors in other countries around the world that have caused people to flee, it seems very hypocritical to say, we've created this mess and now we want no responsibility for it, right? So it's about having a more holistic approach to some of these problems. And it's certainly true that Republicans who say, yeah, we we can't do anything about guns, these policies won't work, which I agree with that, but then turn around and say, but we need the government to you know, shepherd this massive cultural, medical, psychiatric change in how the like spiritual health of young men right. is. And that's what we need mean to do. That. that doesn't sound any more doable. In fact, right. it sounds much less doable. Right. And, they, and it's in bad faith, too, because I don't think there's any actual yeah. legislation that's being proposed uh, to improve mental health. But I, I appreciate that we're getting down to brass tacks and finding yeah. the, the, the root of the root of our disagreements here, Robbie. <laughs> <laughs> but I am definitely looking forward to your radar next. 
Robbie, the people want to know, what's on your radar today? Well, given our discussion yesterday about the seemingly quite large amount of gun violence in the U.S. and in U.S. schools in particular, I wanted to look more closely at the numbers and give you my perspective on them. So for many people, the Uvalde, Texas mass shooting, which claimed the lives of at least 19 children and two adults, seemed all the more horrible after they learned it was the 27th school shooting so far this year. Now, that fact makes it harder to view Uvalde as any kind of isolated incident. How could it be? Surely a country with this much mass death has gone wrong somewhere. Now, on Wednesday, an NPR article highlighting this statistic was shared frequently on social media. The headline, 27 school shootings have taken place so far this year, probably implied to many readers that gun-related killings in schools were especially high this year, even before Uvalde. Naturally, the prospect of 26 other previously unnoticed mass casualty events in schools should provoke alarm. But it should also raise eyebrows, because the issue here is that there are three very differently defined terms being used somewhat incautiously and interchangeably. School shooting, mass shooting, and mass school shooting. Now, Uvalde was a mass school shooting. The 26 previous tragedies at schools this year, they were, not, they were, they were school shootings, they were not mass shootings. So the difference is actually quite significant. Education Week, which tracks all school shootings, defines them as incidents in which a person other than the suspect suffers a bullet wound on school property. It doesn't need to be lethal. Many of the 26 previous shootings involved disputes between students in parking lots, after athletic events, that sort of thing. And all of them resulted in one or zero deaths. Now, these deaths are still incredibly tragic, of course. They're fundamentally dissimilar, however, from the tragedies uh, that we saw, for instance, in Uvalde. Uvalde is a mass school shooting in that four or more people were shot and or killed. The Gun Violence Project counts incidents in which at least four people were shot. Under this definition, many incidents of street crime and domestic violence count as mass shootings, even if there were no deaths that resulted, just four shootings. Now, a stricter tally of mass school shootings conducted by criminologists for Scientific American, that only includes incidents where the shootings resulted in at least four deaths. Using that criteria, the number of mass school shootings in the U.S. since the year 1966 is 13. That's right, just 13 mass casualty events at schools in 60 years. Now, these tragedies claim the lives of 146 people in total. And again, I'm not discounting that at all. It is a terrible tragedy. It should inform policymakers' decisions. Let's talk about what could have prevented it, if anything. But 13 incidents in the last 60 years, it's a much less scary statistic than 27 incidents in the last six months. The two figures are so far apart because they measure different things. One-off gun incidents are a serious problem in the U.S., and schools are no exception. But mass casualty events, on the other hand, are less common than they seem. In fact, they constitute less than 1% of all gun deaths. The sheer horror of the kind of violence witnessed in Uvalde this week is so unthinkable that politicians, the media, and the public all take great interest in discussing strategies to ensure that such a thing never happens again. But mass school shootings are hard to prevent precisely because they are atypical. Suicides and non-mass casualty murders, usually with handguns rather than assault rifles, constitute the overwhelming majority of gun crimes. Now, since I've already talked at length about why I'm not particularly enthusiastic about Democrats' answer to this issue, more gun control, I wanted to also address the conservative slate of policies, which are similarly unimpressive to me. So some conservatives who support the Second Amendment tout enhanced school security as a superior alternative proposal. Guest on Sean Hannity's Fox show this week went as far as to suggest that schools should install, quote, a series of interlocking doors at the school entrance that are triggered by a tripwire. 
The Federalist Tristan Justice laments that, quote, Sandy Hook proved the need to enhance K-12 security. Congress armed Ukraine instead. Some ideas floated by people on the right include adding metal detectors, arming teachers, hiring additional security guards. Quote, we know from past experience that the most effective tool for keeping kids safe is armed law enforcement on the campus, said Senator Ted Cruz in the wake of the shooting. I don't like this idea. While it's not yet totally clear what role a school resource officer played in the Uvalde shooting, some reporting suggests SRO may have engaged the shooter but failed to stop him, school security officials have performed unimpressively during previous crises. Marjorie Stoneman Douglas High School's SRO infamously hid during the 2018 mass shooting in Parkland, Florida. Moreover, placing cops in schools is not a cost-free intervention. The surest consequence is to increase the likelihood that routine disciplinary matters are handled by law enforcement rather than by teachers, counselors, and principals. Doubling the number of SROs in the state of Florida, for example, caused a fourfold increase in incidents of students being physically restrained by cops, according to a study done by the Education Policy Research Center at the University of Florida. Fights between students sexting investigations, even problems on the playground that involve very little kids, can become the purview of the criminal justice system. An SRO once tried to arrest a teenage girl for violating the dress code. If making schools more like prisons was an unfortunate but much-needed strategy to combat an epidemic of violence that SROs were uniquely adept at handling, okay, perhaps hiring more of them would be a good strategy. But in the vast majority of educational settings, this is not the case. Conservatives who understand that the calls to do something, anything, about gun violence invariably produce bad gun control policies should consider that this same rule applies to many of their favorite security proposals. Let's not expand the TSA into schools. Let's just abolish it, please. <laughs> so I'm with you entirely uh, on yeah, the, You probably like the second the half. The second half is great. So the first half, I don't disagree with you. I think it's... I don't know that I understand the argument that, you know, these weren't mass school shootings. Therefore, the kind of gun control that the that is prompted by discussion of, of these kinds of shootings is not necessary. Other people might not be so galvanized or so shocked and horrified by events that are smaller in scale or involve two teenagers in a parking lot. But I certainly am. I don't think any of these things should exist. I don't. I think the fact that there is so much shooting that is happening on school grounds is exactly reflective of how much gun culture has permeated society and how easy, how much easy access there is for these people who are young because they're still in school, right? And so I think that it is true that there is a level of attention being paid to this right now. And every time one of these mass school shootings happens um, that is not present when other kinds of gun violence, including the kind of routine gun violence that takes so many kids' lives, occurs. And that's frustrating. But that has to do, I think, with the elitism of the corporate media structure, who honestly isn't concerned with when low-income kids shoot each other in low-income environments. Like, moments like this are galvanizing. That's a problem for liberals in the media, for affluent Exactly. Media it could be my kids. Exactly. Right. They don't, it, exactly. It's not going to be their kid on the street in Chicago. Right. But, oh, my, my darling could die in any right. kindergarten in America. But that thinking is not, is not statistically accurate. And that's what's important to be like the, the, the we're trying to if we're focusing our attention on the kind of thing we see in Uvalde. It's, again, horrific. I wish we could do something to solve it. But you're talking about like the, the, the maniac who does this kind of thing 
it is not all that common. It is common for people. It's far too common so, in this so country right. for people it's, to die to gun violence. So it wasn't, I'm not saying there's not, not gun violence, but it, this kind of thing, yeah. not as common as well, people Robbie, even when the number was 27, that's not all that common in the right. grand scheme of all of the crimes and horrible things that happen right. in a life. So to me, changing the number, the number is not really what's material, but I do think that it is in uh, kind of like indicative of this this broader issue which how do you get which is how do you get people to care about the fact that there is this easy access to gun i mean we, we talk about this big difference between school shootings and other kinds of shootings but at the end of the day as i talked about in my radar the problem is that people find it incredibly accessible to buy large quantities of guns with impunity you have you know one store in indiana that has people buying in bulk and evading what regulations there are in terms of like trying to pace out your gun regulations knowing it's going to go into chicago 60 percent of chicago some guns kind of tort solution in that specific case well they're trying i mean the right. city of chicago is suing this guns gun store I'm but there are opposed to that. there are a lot of tort barriers yeah. to gun legislators being liable for how their guns are used you make these weapons of mass destruction which are made to take lots of human life. These are not hunting rifles. These are not geared toward precision shooting of deer or elk or whatever. These are designed to take human life, but our brilliant legislature, le legislators have created barriers to actually getting any kind of tort recompense for people. And I think that that is a problem and something that people are going to be talking about a lot more. Because I'm, I'm more open to torts than uh, maybe other people ideologically of my persuasion. I don't know. I would take there, there, there was a, really a political reason why tort reform was such a big deal right. in the 90s, which is that I think conservatives understood that corporations who made harmful products, whether it was pollution, whether it was guns, were able to externalize hot the coffee. harms. Hot coffee. We're able to externalize the harms of their bad behavior on the public, public without ever having to pay. And that tort law was one of the few things that could keep them accountable. And that's why they were so hell-bent on getting rid of it. And, you know, I think we're, we're going to see a lot more of these conversations developing as we go forward over the coming weeks. Well, coming up, Senate Majority Leader Chuck Schumer uh, will respond to calls for gun reform legislation, or rather he already did. And we're going to discuss it with our panel coming up next. Former congressman and candidate for governor Beto O'Rourke is facing backlash for creating a scene at Texas Governor Greg Abbott's press conference on the Robb Elementary school shooting yesterday. O'Rourke approached the stage mid-conference to scold the governor, only to be called a, quote, sick son of a bitch by Uvalde Mayor Dan McLaughlin and removed from the auditorium by security. Uh, pass the mic to Lieutenant Governor Dan Patrick. Excuse me. Excuse me. Excuse me. Sit down. You're out of you're out of line and an embarrassment. Sit down. I don't play this. No. He needs to get his ass out of here. This isn't the place to talk to. So. This is totally predictable. Sir, you're out of line. Sir, you're out of line. Sir, you're out of line. Please leave this auditorium. I can't believe you're a sick son of a <laughs> would come to a deal like this to make a political issue. Yesterday, Senate Majority Leader Chuck Schumer blocked a bill by Senator Ron Johnson that would see more guns in school, saying there were officers of the school, the shooter got past them. We need real solutions. We will vote on gun legislation, starting with the Domestic Terrorism Prevention Act. Johnson called the move political. 
Schumer made that statement just hours after saying Democratic leadership would wait to bring gun control measures to the floor until they had a chance to negotiate bipartisan legislation with a better chance of passing. Joining us now to weigh in is our rising panel. Olayami Olerin is a public defender with Legal Aid NYC and a political commentator. Sam Godoldig is a partner at the CGCN Group. Welcome to you both. Morning. Thank you. Okay, uh, Olayami, what do you make of this uh, intervention here by Beto O'Rourke? Do you think optically uh, he's he's trying to make a name for himself, perhaps for his political ambitions, and and fundamentally, do you think it was effective? I mean, I think he already had a name for himself. If he didn't, we wouldn't even be seeing it because his feelings mirror the feelings of what thousands, millions of Americans all around this country. There is a consistent effort to deflect when issues happen like this. They say, oh, don't make it political or you're trying to make it political. But that's why we have politics. That's why we have government. We have a government in place to protect the people. And so when we see a failed, a continued failed effort to do that, incidents like this happen, and it's not just one thing that we have this mass shooting where 21 people are dead, including 18 children. Less than a, what, a week ago, we had a shooting in Buffalo and 10 people were massacred in a grocery store. We've had over 284 shootings since Columbine. Yes, this is an issue. It is political because we need to talk about the failed, why our government is failing us in doing something. So whether it's effective, not effective, it really has nothing to do with it for me. What it really comes down to the core issue is this does need to be addressed. This is happening for a reason. And the Texas governor and the Texas politicians have a lot to do with why these guns are so easy to access and laws that they pass. So he needed to address it. And I asked, if not then, when's a better time? Sam, my my thinking, or here's what I think O'Rourke's thinking is, and you, you tell me if this matches your own political instincts. He's going to lose if things continue as they are. So why not do something kind of crazy? And if it backfires, well, you're going to lose anyway. And if it succeeds, maybe it helps out. What do you think? I think as a politician, he's speaking to, you know, a, a key constituency in the Democratic base. And um, I don't think it was effective. Um, I think the reason Chuck Schumer is not bringing a bill to the floor is because he lacks 60 votes. And I don't think it's simply, you know, the fact that Republicans won't participate. I think there's some red state Democrats that don't want to take this vote for an election. Um, if, if you really want to accomplish something in, in the U.S. Senate, you need 60 votes. And generally, you know, that means you've got to compromise. And I don't think uh, what, what the Dems are bringing to the table is in any way a compromise. I think it becomes a shirts for skins issue where, you know, both teams kind of huddle up and try to defeat the other. Um, you know, it's it's a broader conversation than just guns at this point. Every Republican, you know, you watch them on TV, they're all talking about mental health. They're talking about social media. They're talking about Hollywood. They're talking about video games. They're talking about pharmaceuticals. Uh, so, you know, when, when Dems come to the table with, you know, we just want this narrow piece of gun control and we think that that's the answer to these problems, re Republicans look at it as an attack on them, an attack on a key constituency of their own. And, uh, you know, you get what you pay for. You know, here we are 10 years later with with no legislation, because I think both parties, depending on the circumstance, use this issue to, you know, gain leverage in, in a political fight rather than seek compromise in Congress and pass a bill that might do something helpful. 
Yeah, I do think some folks are going to look at what Beto Roker has done, this interjection, and say, well, what is he really asking for if they don't have 60 votes and if Joe Biden has been so forceful about not wanting to get rid of the filibuster? And also, you know, the conservative Democrats have also made murmurs that they don't think this is an issue that they would support getting rid of the filibuster for um, and potentially might not even have 50 votes if they did. Uh, but I also am curious, Sam, if there is any specific legislation that Republicans are putting forward as they talk about things like mental health and these other factors that might, might very well be co-factors. I think that Democrats might see those suggestions as being made in good faith if there were, say, a bill that extended mental health care, perhaps under a Medicare for All style program, to all Americans. Is there anything specific there being offered? I don't work on a ton of on any gun control issues or any mental health issues. I'm, I'm a lobbyist and, and represent different industries. So I, I'm not aware of them. But, you know, you, you could see a, a violence in Hollywood tax to help pay for some of these things. You know, you got Robert De Niro out there, you know, speaking about the Second Amendment. He hasn't made a movie without gun violence in it in decades. You know, I, there's a million things Republicans could be for that I think would um, would be productive in, in, a, in a broader argument. And I, I think if there was a real real desire to bring the parties together and, and figure out a compromise, I, I think you, you could see some legislation come together on the Republican side and certainly from the Dems that addresses everything. I, I, the problem I think is, you know, the media covers this as if they're like WWE referees, you know, they're, they're in on the partisan joke, they're, amping the country up. They're getting bases whipped up for an election in, in 2022. And, you know, he, we're in the same spot we've always been because our system is the way it is. And, and you know, everyone is culpable, whether it's media coverage, whether it's the, the politicians digging in, you know, to, to blame anyone for, for this tragedy is is not fair. It's, it's like blaming you know, a politician for COVID. It, it happened. It's sad. You know, like there's so many things at, at factor here and, and policies do matter. And I, I think, you know, a lot of members of Congress and senators truly do want to get to the bottom of it. But unfortunately, we kind of devolve into this, you know, team sport kind of well, thing. And we have a 50-50 Senate and we're five months before an election. And, you know, you're probably not going to find compromise in five months. And I, I'm certain that's why Chuck Schumer is not bringing a bill to the floor because he doesn't right. have the votes. Right. The problem is that there isn't tremendous political will to do something dramatic on this issue. Maybe there's political will in certain liberal enclaves. They've probably already done uh, uh, those, you know, the, the kind of harsher or stricter gun control policies. There isn't appetite broadly among the public for, for really dramatic policy change. And I think nothing short of really dramatic policy change is going to make much of a difference in the gun violence death total. Well, Robbie, do Robbie, why do you say I that? Need us, oh, sorry, go ahead, Ole. I need us to stop pretending like there isn't a clear thing that's happening. We've had over 284 shootings. 31 people have been dead in like the last last 10 days. Let's, let's talk about why that actually happened in both shootings. Two 18-year-olds were able to legally go and get two AR-15s. They were able to do that and use those guns. That we need to talk about that. It's not a political issue. It's not just that this is a football fight, you know, between teams that we like. This is about the fact that the American people across the country are incensed at the fact that school shootings, mass shootings have become normal. That 31 
people are dead. So I, I would disagree with all this conversation about whether or not this is blame and the media's role about it. The reason you're seeing outrage is because children were slaughtered days ago, and we have to talk about that. And you know, and when we're talking about this, I think an important point is we have banned assault uh, assault weapons before. This has happened, right? Automatic weapons have been banned, and we saw the shootings go down. And when the ban was lifted, we saw a triple. So there is an actual direct correlation to guns here. People aren't just talking about it as a means of political capital or because they want to attack the Republicans. No, no, no. They're talking about it because people are dead and they don't want to continue seeing this happen. People are scared of sending their children to school and they're not being, making it back. We have to talk about that. And we can't get bogged down in political theater, uh, Beto O'Rourke, Democrats versus Republicans, the media, how you like it, and all these other things meant to deflect entertainment, Hollywood, yada, yada, yada. None of those things have anything to do with the fact that two 18-year-olds legally got two AR-15s and shot people to death. We need to talk about that. Yeah, Sam, to Alami's point, you know, if it is true uh, what Robbie is saying, that there isn't a, an, an appetite for a significant change, which I would push back against. We just recently read a poll that said most voters are enthusiastic about bigger policies as opposed to smaller ones. That, that like poll wasn't what? specific but about like gun, gun policy. It was just understanding that people are tired of a kind of incremental approach that seems to not get us anywhere. But assuming that Rob, what Robbie says is true and there isn't an appetite for doing something big in the face of a mass shooting at an elementary school, why is that the case, in your opinion, Sam? And do you, what do you make of Olayami's point that there are things that we know demonstrate, are demonstrated to bring down levels of gun violence? Why isn't there strong outrage and enthusiasm and support among, I think, predominantly conservatives to do something, whether it's the mental health that they think it's that or the gun restrictions that so many Democrats think and you know, some evidence suggests will actually change outcomes here? I don't think there's 50 votes in the Senate on the Democratic side. I, I think that, you know, polling overwhelmingly shows that it's it's popular, but maybe not in states like Montana and West Virginia and Arizona and other key constituencies that Chuck Schumer needs on his side. So, well, do you think it might have something I, to do with the fact that for a long time now, and polls have borne this out, there is not a, a, a relationship between what the people in these various constituencies want, red or blue, and what Congress is willing to pass because of the influence of lobbying, not just from big gun manufacturers uh, in the NRA, but from a whole host of groups? I disagree. I, I think the voters in those states are not supportive of the measures that you guys want, would like them to take. And there's a reason why they're not voting for these things. And I, I think they, in their minds, I'm, I'm certain they think they're represent, and also, representing and constituents in their states. Making it somewhat harder for an 18-year-old to acquire an AR-15 is not going to put a dent in the gun death totals each year in this country at all. It's oh, just it's not. not. It's so not if an 18 year old couldn't get an AR-15, wouldn't be shooting? Whatsoever. It's not. Okay, oh, well, I mean, if 18 year old, two 18 year olds couldn't get AR-15s, by my imagination, what I could just observe based on the last 10 days, there would at least be 31 people that wouldn't be dead. Yeah, it is true that people have we been We don't posting. know that they wouldn't be. He was locked in a room with, with these kids for an hour. But so we Robbie, don't know you at said all that, if that this would have been any different with any type of gun. Millions of more people Robbie, than guns in the country. Robbie, look at how many mass shootings have been used of them killed with handguns. Robbie, the thing is, most of these shootings are happening with AK, uh, AR-15. No, that's not true. true. If you, if you go down true. the list, a look at the mass shootings. Look at the mass shootings, Robbie. Are repeatedly so. Do you think that there's any pause to be given about whether or not, whether it's AR-15s or other kinds of guns that can 
shoot mo many, many rounds in a short period of time. That's the issue, right? That more damage can be done with a automatic or semi-automatic gun than can be done with a pistol or javelin or a knife or other kinds of things that just can't kill as many people in a shorter period of time. Should there, should, do, Robbie, do you think it should be the case that 18 year olds, as happened in this case, can go on their 18th birthday to a store and purchase uh, an AR-15? I don't think it will make any difference any statistical difference in how many people are killed by guns every year. So why do you think that so often AR-15s are at issue in these cases? It's not true that they're so often at it, issue. It, 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 is, okay, it that's, is true. That is true. In the handful of mass school shootings that have occurred, I mean, I'm talking about this in my radar today, so we should save that discussion for that, but the handful of mass school shootings that have occurred, yes, AR-15s have played a role, but most people are killed in homicides or other or right. other episodes that and, do not and, involve and we should talk about how to address those kinds of killings but in the in a week where we just had an ar-15 kill 10 people in a supermarket and an ar-15 just kill you know a, a, a whole classroom full of, of elementary school students and their teachers why the deflection from talking about how to stop incidents like this that have really I didn't gripped deflect. the public imagination. I said that we have no evidence that that's going to help. Go ahead and do it. It's not going to solve the gun violence problem. We don't even know it would make it would solve the issue in these it, cases. Olaimi? But it did. We've tried it before. We did it in the 90s. We did ban automatic weapons, and we did see the shootings go down. And when we lifted the ban, it went up three times. So how are we going to say that it would have no bearing? If we're seeing continuously, since Columbine in 1999, we've had over 200 of these kinds of shootings, and they're using automatic weapons. We how don't have 200 kinds of have... Columbine shootings, though. We have I'll pull it up, Robin. And, and <laughs> we can get into that in your narrator. But I want to ask you, Sam, you know, if, you know, the, 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 the unspoken you know, elephant in the room here is that there is this implication that if we were to say, raise the age at which someone could get one of these weapons to 25, the way that you have to be 25 to rent a car, the implication is that if we were to say there is, it's not as easy for people to get their, their hands on a volume of bullets that can cause this level of destruction, or it's not easy for people to get their hands on the kind of guns that can shoot so many rounds per minute, that that would be a uh, attack on the Second Amendment that is constitutionally unsupported. Do you believe that the Second Amendment requires that 18-year-olds be able to buy a, a semi-automatic or automatic weapon on their 18th birthday? What I believe is irrelevant. It's what 100 senators and 435 members of Congress believe. Um, I do believe that people that support the Second Amendment have a First Amendment right to tell those members of Congress and those senators what they believe. And, and I think, you know, part of the reason why nothing gets done is because it turns into what this segment just did, you know, just kind of, you know, shouting over one another and no compromise. So, you know, until we get to a place where we can have a conversation about the whole problem with guns in America and these shootings and it, it doesn't happen in other places and there's got to be reasons for it and I'm certainly no expert we're, we're, we're simply not going to get anywhere we got an election in five months there's reasons why Chuck Schumer is not bringing a bill to the floor of the Senate the, the reasons to me are obvious he doesn't have the votes and maybe he doesn't even have his whole team on board Beto O'Rourke did what he did I think he was politicizing the issue personally and I think that that hurts a broader effort to come together and work on things. But I do think that every single constituent has the right to voice their opinion to their members of Congress, no matter what state they're in. And, you know, in New York and the Northeast, they feel strongly one way out West in the South, they feel another way. And, you know, until both, both parties recognize that there is strong feelings about these issues, 
and that those voices deserve to be heard, we're just going to continue to shout at each other, and, and that doesn't accomplish yeah, anything. Sam, with, with all due respect, do... there is ample proof that there is a disjunction between what people want and what the representatives want. A lot of the common sense gun control policies that are being discussed are actually are ones with majority report. And I'm not sure what the First Amendment implications are here for you, but what is true is that the lobbying money that is being funneled into Congress is having a huge effect on the democratic process and for voters to be, have the ability to speak by actually voting. Their votes are being usurped by the fact that con Congress members are paying more attention to the money in their coffers. I want to give you the last word, Olay. I think no one is disputing that this is an issue where people feel strongly on one side, right? No one is disputing that you have a Second Amendment, right? No one is disputing that people feel passionately about their guns. But what is fact is that these shootings continue to happen, that people are dying, and that there is no constitutional, there's nothing in the Second Amendment that says that you can't regulate the Second Amendment at all, that you need to have um, easy, unfettered access to every kind of weapon that you want. That's not what it says. That's not the issue. And no one is trying to take away the guns or take away your Second Amendment right. What we are saying is that we keep seeing these shootings happen. There are armed police officers uh, at the scenes, and yet these shootings continue to happen because people have these easy access to automatic weapons, and we're tired of seeing it happen. So we need to put in place these common sense measures that prevent people from having access to these weapons and killing more people. Yeah, I'm not. I'm not arguing the Second Amendment, by the way. I I don't. I just don't have a lot of faith that those policies would make as much difference. But I'm glad we had that debate on the show today. Thank you both for joining us. We appreciate it. Thank you. And we'll be back with more Rising right after this. New reporting about the baby formula shortage is coming to light. And it turns out a whistleblower report about safety concerns at the Abbott factory in Michigan were sent to the FDA back in October 2020, but didn't reach any FDA officials for four months. This is according to the Washington Post. The 34-page long report didn't reach the FDA's Deputy Commissioner for Food Policy, Frankie Yannis, until one baby had already died and two others were hospitalized after consuming formula from the Abbott plant. This caused the factory to close down and receive a full inspection by the FDA. FDA Commissioner Dr. Robert Califf told a House panel yesterday that the agency found a leaking roof, water pooled on the floor, cracks in production equipment, but he also acknowledged that the agency's response was too slow. The plant is expected to reopen in early June, with formula expected to roll out shortly after. Yesterday, 120,000 pounds of baby formula was shipped to the U.S. from Europe under the administration's operation to ease the supply shortages, adding to another shipment of nearly 80,000 pounds over the weekend. So, you know, I, I, the big question is why were they so slow to get the report and actually investigate the plant? Well, there was some indication when I did my radar about this uh, a couple of weeks ago now that there is significant backlogs caused, caused by some funding issues at the FDA. You know, it does seem like they have a lot on their plate in the same way that a lot of public um, offices like public defenders offices have a caseload that's bigger than the number of staff that they have. Now, it also could just be an individual negligence issue where some employee had a stack of papers on their desk that they didn't get to just because they didn't get to it and not because they were overworked or stretched too thin. But it's galling either way. And I hope we learn some more details about this going forward. Yeah. Apparently, Yanis didn't even know. I'm, I'm looking at the Washington Post. He and he's complained to the Washington Post that um, he did not learn about the complaint until four months later, after right. one of the infants had already died and two others were hospitalized. 
Uh, he, he says, it wasn't sent to me. It wasn't shared with me internally. How does this happen? This is him, like, ranting to the Washington Post. That's pretty, well, pretty bad. Well, it does. Well, as Brianna was, so I'm curious about your take on this, Robbie, because as Brianna was just alluding to, they need more funding. So the FDA needs more funding to hire more people to be able to ensure that they can get to all of the, the issues that they need to get to rather than letting these complaints That's just always, always a solution when the police say we can't do our jobs <laughs> without more funding until we can't bring down crime, until you hire a bunch more of us. We say, okay, you're rewarded for doing a bad job. Here's well, more funding. The difference is we have, you know, 100 years of uh, police funding history to look back at and see what the correlation is between actually increasing, increasing police funding and lowering crime. Now, look, I'm completely open. Like I said, we don't know exactly what happened in this particular instance. If it is that there is some administrative uh, procedure that doesn't allow things to escalate up the ranks efficiently in the FDA, then that obviously should be changed and that's not a funding issue. Right. If there is some like personnel reporting issues that need to be changed, then that's a change that doesn't require more funding. I just don't think there's any, if law enforcement is bad at their jobs and corrupt and lazy and there's tons of bloat, I don't think there's anything specific to law enforcement that makes it that way. Actually, conservatives believe the opposite, right? They believe government is incompetent and bad and government employees, that it's wasteful and they're not doing their jobs correctly and they shouldn't get more funding, except for law enforcement. They're perfect. Don't say anything bad about them. Our heroes, every one of them. I, 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 ta- I, I, I think those same incompetencies, inadequacies are probably prevalent in basically every government department and program. Right, but I, I don't think that the argument is that the problems that exist in the world that cause people to start police departments should just be left to run rampant on their own because there are these problems with the police. The question is whether or not you change the police in some meaningful way, whether that's characterized as you know, defunding or abolishing them. But there's obviously needs that need to be met. And some of those needs are going to require people that have arms to intervene in situations like we just saw earlier this week um, you know, at the elementary school student shooting. And many others are going to require police, some kind of person to be mobilized in more mental health capacities, social work capacities, et cetera. And I think it's perfectly fair to say we're not talking about ignoring the problem, which is, I think, sometimes what a laissez-faire libertarian approach ends up with, I'm more to say, okay, there are real issues here with the institution that's been created to address the problem. Let's radically change the institution. Let's meaningfully change the institution. I'm certainly not committed to keeping the FDA exactly like it is for here on out. There are obviously some problems that I'd like to know more about. What kind of reforms, be they funding reforms or other kind of reforms, would help it to do, it to do its job better? Because the job is needed. It's interesting, isn't it? Because, you know, on one side, on the the progressive argument when it comes to policing has been less funding would actually solve the problem, which is that's like what Robbie would say. (laughs) I'm saying saying more funding won't solve the problem. I don't know if less funding will. I I know it's frustrating. Probably people listening to me get frustrated. I think a lot of our problems cannot be solved. And uh, we're we're deluding ourselves if we think, right, more government. But go ahead, Kim. I cut you off. Sorry. Well, well, but it's still, it, you know, it's interesting because that is more of a libertarian way of thinking, right. which is if we let go of the funding, if we let, you know, th- then maybe we would have salt. We'd solve these problems in some way because a lot of the corruption is in all of the funding. Right. And then at the same time, uh, you know, the same crowd would say, well, we need to increase funding in programs such as, you know, like the FDA or other regulatory bodies in order to ensure safety and, and whatnot. And so it's interesting to see both sides of this, where then you've got on the on the right people saying, no, we need more police funding. That's how we solve the problems. But then when it comes to wanting to fund any other 
organization or regulatory body. It's like, oh, no, no, we, we can't have more funding for that. Government is the problem. So I'm just trying to figure out both sides of this. Like, which is right. it? Well, Kim, we, got, not, we got Kim in the middle it's, again. It's not inconsistent, yeah. though, because the people who want to, let's say, defund the police are saying to redirect that money into social programs that could actually help address the causes of crime, right? Kim, so it's not the same. It's not the same as what libertarians are doing, which is to say, I have an ideological commitment to not funding things regardless of what the impacts are. People on the left generally are saying, well, I don't have an ideological commitment to funding things more. I think I've said maybe three or four times in this segment alone, hey, if the funding issue won't solve what's going on at the FDA, do other kinds of things. What what I want is to figure out solutions that work. And at the, if at the end of the day, the FDA is saying we don't have the personnel to get through these reports, these the mail that is coming through us, then hey, let's let them hire more personnel. If the issue is internal and that someone should have just been doing their job, then maybe there needs to be some personnel changes and some, some um, institutional changes inside to make sure the reporting comes through. But defund the police isn't a call to get rid of funding, it's to stop funding something that doesn't work and to shift funds into policies that do. I would say for me it's ideological, but it's ideological, my ideology is shaped by the practicality of it, right? If I thought that allocating a lot more funding to the police, uh, for instance, would bring down a crime or you know, hiring a, a lot more cops would solve a lot of the problems I'm seeing, that would probably suggest to me that, well, then probably it works with other government programs and that like my ideology would change. I'd go, okay, well, my ideology has to change because actually we need to give government more resources to solve all these problems. My ideology is the way it is because I see the government failing to solve lots of problems regardless of the amount of funding it gets. Most government agencies, programs get more funding over time regardless of any change in administration. Some are defunded, but yeah, that's mostly not, they that's just, just get more there funding. There was a huge defunding wave in the 1980s that people haven't uh, Education funding has never from. gone down one iota right, and it hasn't the, improved schools at the all. The country gets bigger and there are more kids and of course everything goes Her up. Pupil wages funding goes wages up. have gone up over time even though obviously there's been a huge huge gap in the proportion that they've gone up. So I think those numbers are a little misleading. Everything the government touches turns to ash. Okay. I'm just here trying to instigate fights. I was hoping somebody would throw a pen. <laughs> we, did, we did have a little bit of, we had some tense, uh, tense stuff today on the show, but very, uh, you know, very uh, uh, heated uh, topics, obviously. This one's, right. this one a little more fun, but uh, <laughs> all right. Well, we'll have more rising after this. Kim, what's on your radar? Well, you might have heard about this. This was trending on social media over the last few days. But on Monday, 98-year-old Henry Kissinger spoke at the World Economic Forum in Davos and suggested Ukraine should seek to end the war with Russia by letting go of Crimea and the Donbass. Though Ukraine hasn't had control over these areas for almost a decade, Recently, with the power of billions in Western weapons behind him, Zelensky has not only wanted to end the current invasion, but also wants to fight until Crimea and the Donbass are back under Ukrainian control, territories that were lost in 2014. Now, Kissinger thinks this is a bad idea, and he called for the West to pressure Ukraine into a peace agreement that realistically includes letting it go of these territories. According to the Daily Telegraph, Kissinger said, quote, negotiations need to begin in the next two months before it creates upheavals and tensions that will not be easily overcome. Ideally, the dividing line should be a return to the status quo ante. Pursuing the war beyond that point would not be about freedom of Ukraine, but a new war against Russia itself. So Kissinger says he's worried about Europe's long-term stability and fears the growing divide between Russia and the West will cause Russia to further join into a new alliance with China. 
something he sees as more dangerous than Russia controlling parts of Ukraine. Now, many people agree with Kissinger's sentiments, but many are also shocked that well-known warmonger, Harry Kissinger, the man who advocated for the bombing of, quote, anything that moves, the man who expanded the Vietnam War into Laos and Cambodia, backed Pakistan in its war against Bangladesh despite known war crimes, and installed Pinochet in Chile, would actually be the one calling for an end to the war rather than continued escalation. So Kissinger, maybe you may not know or you know, but he is known or, or thought of as the father of U.S. interventionism. Uh, maybe it went back before him, but still, it's very much his idea. But Kissinger is also well known for what is called a real politic approach to foreign policy. This is taking a more pragmatic or realistic stance, despite what moral implications there might be. So his entire foreign policy ethos was to basically sacrifice anyone for the sake of the best interests of the nation. So actually, his calling for an end to the war in Ukraine is likely not a function of Kissinger softening up in his old age. This is what people were kind of wondering on social media. But actually, it's in line with much of his foreign policy strategy of old. He clearly doesn't view Ukraine as important, at least not as important as Russia sticking with the West rather than strengthening ties with China. But nonetheless, Henry Kissinger, of all people, is calling for peace negotiations rather than sending endless weapons to Ukraine. So, Robbie and Bree, I mean, this this kind of lit up the Internet. They, people were falling over themselves, the anti-war crowd saying, I cannot believe, you know, if I am agreeing with Henry Kissinger of all people, who was very much a warmonger, you know, his whole entire foreign policy agenda was, doesn't matter if we got to go to war, if we've got to bomb people, if we have to uh, do, you know, stage coups, overthrow governments, anything that's best for the United States. And it's not about, you know, his foreign policy um, outlook wasn't about democracy or right. human rights. You know, we hear a lot about that. It was more about what is going to keep America strong, what is going to keep America in the lead, what's best for the country. So a lot of people were really like, what in the world? Why would, you know, has he gotten, you know, he's finally come around at the age of 98 to being more about peace. But the reality is he is really concerned when you actually listen to not only this speech that he gave at Davos, but other things that he said in other interviews He's really concerned about Russia and China, the alliance between the two of the, those two nations. And so he really hasn't changed his foreign policy outlook. He's saying, what, what is Ukraine, right? So how is Ukraine important in the grand scheme of things when if Russia aligns with China, this could completely change the dynamic of geopolitics around the world the power of those two nations together. And, and then we're seeing all of these other nations sort of, sort of um, refuse to join in, like Israel, uh, Saudi Arabia, uh, India. A lot of nations are refusing to kind of go along with the Western agenda with Ukraine and instead saying, well, we don't really want to upset Russia and China. So, you know, he's looking at it saying that is going to be way worse for the West, that alliance, than... Uh, Ukraine uh, losing territory or, you know, not having a, a democratically elected Ukraine, you know, if, if they're back under Russian control or something. So uh, so I don't really think Henry Kissinger's changed his outlook. I think he's looking at it from still sort of a real politic point of view, which is we just want to stop China from rising. Right, because there's a, a difference uh, that you're getting at exactly between kind of, you know, some people want to paint all 
sort of in the pro-war camp as the same. But there is a difference between the kind of Bush-era neoconservatism that was really ostensibly de be de uh, done. Yes, it was going to benefit us to have more democracies or whatever, but it was really done us asserting that it's in those countries' best interests for us to overthrow their governments and, and install regime, the democratic regimes, really because that's what's going to be good for them. Whereas a, the kind of real politic view that Kissinger represented, and I, even someone like John Bolton was closer to, who I have many, obviously, policy disagreements with, but it was, it was more, we have to you know, destroy these governments because they're hostile to us, and we should destroy all governments that are hostile to us if we can. That's the calculus. So that's very different from a kind of uh, a neoconservatism that strives, to, that, that views the U.S. military's role as to make the world a better place rather than one that should just relentlessly crush anything we perceive to be our enemies. Yeah, I think that the if we can is really weighing heavy in Kissinger's remarks. I think the growing realization that we're not just necessarily facing a direct conflict with Russia, but as we've talked about on this show earlier this week, Biden's recent statements about coming to the military aid of Taiwan also really ratcheted up the stakes here in terms of the new alliances that are happening with these major powers on a global scale. And I, I do feel like this whole thing has the whiff of that uh, internet meme, the worst person in the world makes a good point. <laughs> You just kind of had to be like, okay, a broken clock is right twice a day and not read too much into it. But it's interesting. I was reading there was a response from a Ukrainian MP who said, uh, gave a, what's described as a polite reply in this uh, CNBC report. He said, I think Mr. Kissinger still lives in the 20th century and we are in the 21st century and we are not going to give up an inch of our territory. That's a Ukrainian member of parliament told, uh, on Wednesday. And I do think that that reflects uh, this really dug in approach that has existed existed since the beginning of this conflict, where any conversation about any concession on the part of Ukraine was very quickly framed as not respecting the rights of Ukrainians, Ukrainian sovereignty, and pretending as though increased escalation and prolonging this conflict inured to the benefit of the individuals living in Ukraine who are the ones that are going to have to bear the consequences of this ongoing fighting and war. And I am hopeful that this represents some kind of a adjustment in that conversation potentially about whether or not what America is doing is in fact this kind of like peacekeeping, you know, supportive posture, the way it's being framed now in the media, as opposed to what is actually from, from some people's perspective, an instigation of conflict that is escalating the kinds of human rights abuses that individuals in the country are facing. And what's really interesting is that, you know, Henry Kissinger is calling for Ukraine to kind of drop the idea at this point to take back Crimea and the areas of the Donbass that they have not had any control over for the last eight years. So, you know, there is this escalation, you're right, Brianna, that not only is has the Ukraine perspective dug in, but they've dug in even harder. I mean, at one point it was like, okay, we're not gonna concede any extra territory. Now they're saying, not only are, do we want all that territory back, right now Russia controls about 20% of Ukraine. They've made significant land gains. Uh, maybe, you know, it's not half of Ukraine, it's not all of Ukraine by any means, but they have a lot of the Eastern territory of Ukraine now. So not only is it about uh, somehow getting that newly gained, like Mariupol, gaining those territories back, but now Ukraine is saying that's not enough. Not only do we want the new stuff you guys have grabbed since February, but we want all the old stuff you grabbed back in 2014 too. That is not going to happen. The people in those areas don't want it to happen. The citizens in those areas. So that's that's a question. That's a, a, a way of thinking 
and you know uh, and to say that this is this is where we'll you know we'll finally negotiate with you we'll finally have peace talks once you withdraw completely is totally and completely unrealistic because Ukraine is feeling very empowered at the moment it's because we're giving them so many weapons but what's interesting is that Henry Kissinger is saying well okay maybe just stop at the whole trying to take back Crimea and Donbass Russia's not going to give back even the land they've gained now so we have to be even realistic about that. They're not going to give back Mariupol. Are you kidding me? After every, after all the soldiers that they lost, uh, the gains that they've made, it's been too costly. They can't. So the only way, so even Henry Kissinger, even though you know he seems to be calling for some sort of peace by saying, don't try to get back Crimea, it's still really not enough to actually get to peace at the end, to, to get to a peace point in this conflict. At this point, the only thing that can happen is to concede all the land territory that Russia's already grabbed. They're not going to give it back and to say, OK, stop grabbing more. You know, we have to. But that would be viewed as a surrender. But what is the alternative? And Henry Kissinger's point is the alternative is Russia starts pairing up with China, breaks away more from the West. You get a new world order, a new power axis. And that could be even more dangerous for the West and the United States than any sort of trying to save Ukrainian democracy, which, you know, in my opinion, is a farce anyway. There was really no Ukrainian democracy. That's that's a, a total, you know, that it's not real. Uh, we staged a coup in 2014, overthrew their democratically elected government, installed a very anti-Russian government. It's oligarchs that have run Ukraine for decades, whether they be Russian-backed oligarchs or Western-backed oligarchs. It is not a true democracy. That's just the reality of it. But Nonetheless, so it, but it is interesting. People on social media were going crazy saying, you know, the anti-war crowd saying, oh, my gosh, Henry Kissinger's become anti-war. That's not really what's happened. But uh, I, I just I, I would like to see more people in Davos start talking about an end to this conflict, a realistic one. But I. It, here we are still fighting. Here we are <laughs> still providing weapons, at least and intelligence. Well, thank you, Kim. And we'll be back with more rising in just a minute. Ukrainian President Zelensky doubled down on his terms for negotiations with Russian President Vladimir Putin and called for an end to the war only if Putin is prepared to negotiate, get this face to face, and added that Putin's withdrawal of troops out of Ukraine would mark the first step in negotiations. The Ukrainian president has taken center stage at this year's World Economic Forum in Davos and has received standing ovations from the world's global elites. During a virtual address, Zelensky called for maximum sanctions against Russia, including a complete oil embargo, isolation of all Russian banks from the global financial system, an abandonment of Russia's IT sector, and suspension of trade with Russia. Uh, so what yeah. do you think about that, Kim? I mean, I don't, I, I don't expect him to call for anything less than this. Right, I mean, I think Zelensky's job, right, as president of Ukraine is to call for the maximum of absolutely everything. He's fighting a war, so he should be calling for complete you know, eradication of Russia off the face of the planet. I mean, why not call for that? That's fine for him to call for it. The issue is how everyone else responds to it and how the rest of the world, uh, you know, how they respond to Zelensky's asks and how they encourage him. And are they encouraging him to continue on that path of complete obliteration of Russia, let's say, or are they actually trying to get him to come to the table and negotiate for peace? And what's interesting about what's going on in Davos is that, we're seeing not, I mean, there, there, there is a lot of consensus there, you know, Zelensky did get standing ovations, but there are still some, 
you know, it's it's not like complete consensus in Davos. We are seeing some step forward and say, is this really a good idea? You know, you have some people, uh, leaders coming in from the Middle East saying, you know, is this whole going and grabbing, uh, you know, uh, taking um, the, the Russian oligarch stuff, their Western investments, um, what is it called again? Repossessing or, you know, sorry, I'm, I'm having a brain moment here, but going and taking their assets or freezing their assets, is that really a good precedent to set that is going to actually maybe discourage others from around the world to want to invest, you know, to have investments in Western nations. Mm. Uh, and then you get other leaders that are saying, you know, and maybe this whole thing is going to lead to, you know, like like even George Soros, he actually told a crowd in Davos that the invasion may be the beginning of World War III and added that our civili- civilization may not survive it. So you've got these leaders that are saying, uh, you know, are we going down the right path? So it's really kind of interesting the you know, it's not like full on consensus of, yes, OK, we all must do this against Russia. A lot of people are saying there's going to be some fatigue, war fatigue. You know, once once winter hits, especially we've got food shortages, rising costs of energy. Um, you know, Europe's not getting the gas. They need to stay warm. What is going to happen? Are people going to say, OK, time to give it up, Ukraine? Yeah, I think those are good questions because Zelensky sounds like a man gambling with somebody else's chips. And those chips are being provided by the United States. And also some of those chips are the lives of people who live in Ukraine, who are the ones that have to endure the the consequences of this ongoing crisis. The food shortages that everyone is anticipating are not likely to affect Americans and have Americans going hungry in the same way that other parts of the world are going to be affected. And there is something that's so detached about someone from a country that is relatively small and powerless speaking with so much bass in their voice, as the kids say, about an ongoing conflict with a nuclear power that is Russia. And I think that people who, again, are bringing forth a conversation about the potentiality of World War III are right to do so. It's always something that's looming on the horizon. And I think it's just so irresponsible for folks to be cheerleading this as though there aren't some really extreme cataclysmic potential consequences here. Yeah. And there is a big crowd in Davos calling for that. You know, there is a Mm -hmm. big crowd there that are saying, no, we've got to do everything we can to stop Russia at all costs. That is how but that is how the people of Ukraine feel as well. Right. Zelensky does have tremendous popularity with his people. They want to they want to soldier on. It seems I think that is debatable. It it seems like they want to fight that they are not going to let the country go. I, again, that is totally debatable. Like, for example, uh, there's been 13, at least 13 attacks on recruitment centers, domestic attacks on military recruitment centers inside Ukraine. The people are not happy with conscription. So we are seeing an increase of these little you know, instances of revolting from the Ukrainian people. You've got a lot of Ukrainians trying to flee the country. We saw them leave in mass. That is not a symbol of wanting to stick around and fight for the country. The men were stopped at the border. They were forced to turn around and go fight for the country. So I don't know, you know, when they they have like, okay, so they, they conduct these polls, for example, and they'll say, well, you know, overwhelmingly Ukrainians say that it's that they they want uh, they don't want to end the war until Crimea is won back, you know, until Russia gives back Crimea. Well, they didn't ask a single person in Crimea when they when they asked that when they were taking the poll. They didn't ask anybody in the Donbass how they felt about it. You know, they selectively ask people just all the way in Western Ukraine, which is a very different group of people than the people in Eastern Ukraine. It's a very divided country between, you know, there's a, the Russian speakers and the Ukrainian speakers and 
So I, I don't know if there is you know, of course, our media is going to tell us, yes, there's absolute consensus. They all want to fight and die for their country. There are then other reports coming out that make you question that. Why are they then sabotaging their own military recruitment centers? So I'm sure someone is in, in the regions you, you mentioned, but it, I don't know. It seems pretty clear that there's will to fight on in the western part of Ukraine. Maybe I'm wrong about that. but Well, in the western part, but isn't that the whole point that before this conflict emerged, there was this, not straight down the middle, but pretty obvious geographic split between eastern and western Ukraine. And my understanding was that once the conflict started, some people who were sympathetic to Russia became frustrated because they got caught in the crosshairs of the activity and said, okay, well, even if I had pro-Russia sympathies, I'm not wild about the invasion itself. And I feel like that that sentiment is in flux as people assign blame differently over time to the circumstances that they're living in as the conflict extends and extends and extends. Do you see it if initially you, you were pro-Russia or had or sympathetic to Russia and Russian speaking um, in the Eastern region, but then were frustrated by how the Im invasion impacted your life, but now you're seeing Zelensky saying that this should go on forever, you can see how your sympathies would vacillate right. over time. And I, I take Kim's point that it is probably very difficult for you know, the Western audience to get a good sense of what's happening in the region. There's been so much misrepresentation about what the sentiments were in the region that I think some skepticism is probably well advised. Well, and right. There's no doubt that people want the war to end, obviously. I don't you know, we don't know. Uh, we, we did interview. We should try to get perspective again from people who are there because we did interview a couple weeks ago some people who had who were in Ukraine to try to kind of get the sentiment that was so the sentiment might have changed you know significantly obviously over the last however many weeks it's been as more people die as more cities are destroyed and leveled um, but you know how much what kind of uh, concessions the people of Ukraine are are willing to live with is, is right I guess it's an open question because there are going to have to be concessions or it's just going to go on uh, forever. I mean, that's fairly clear. Yeah. Well, and we have to remember that this is not a, a real, I mean, it is seemingly a fresh war. It's certainly a fresh war that the West is talking about, but actually the civil war has been going on in, in Ukraine for almost a decade now, since 2014. So there has been, there hasn't even been consensus inside of Ukraine for the last nearly a decade. Mm -hmm. So, so now, you know, yes, it's escalated, it's ramped up, it's now much more on the international stage. People are paying a lot more attention to it. But the fighting in the Donbass has been horrible since 2014. It's been really bad. And 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 in Odessa, massacres in Odessa and Mariupol against the Russian speakers in those regions. So, you know, one sentiment in the Ukrainian, in the real pro-nationalist Ukrainian way of thinking is that, well, these are not real Ukrainians. These are Russians that have been imported in by Russia in order to help take over Ukraine. That's been their perspective. So their nationalist perspective is these people aren't really Ukrainian and they got to go. So they've been extremely harsh to these people, brutal, in fact, murderous to these people. And so you've got so but then those people say, no, we are Ukrainian. We live here. This is our country. We're just Russian speaking Ukrainians and we're being targeted, you know. And so it doesn't mean that those Russian speaking Ukrainians necessarily want to be part of Russia or run by Russia, a lot of them want to be independent. But again, you know, this is like what Bree is saying. It, it, it's pulling on, it's pulling people in a lot of different directions, I think, inside of Ukraine. I don't know if there's a lot of consensus. But, you know, what's interesting, I think, mostly in kind of the point of this whole segment, I think what's interesting is we're not seeing, we're starting to see the consensus that there seemed to be in the beginning of this conflict, right? The whole, everybody was coming together saying, we got to stop Russia. 
And now even in Davos, we're starting to see the a little bit of the cracks, right? Mm-hmm. We're starting to see people say, some of these you know wealthy oligarchs and the billionaires saying, I, I don't know, maybe we should cool it a bit. So are we going to see more of that as time goes on? Or are people going to be rallying around Ukraine more and continuing with endless weapons and fighting until mm-hmm. Crimea is back? We'll see. Uh, well, tomorrow on Rising, Ryan Grimm and Emily Jashinsky will discuss the gain-of-function debate with two scientists that are on opposing sides of the argument. They'll also review what you need to know about this week's primary results. So be sure to like, share, and subscribe so you never miss any content. And for those of you who like to listen while on the go, of course, you can listen to us now via podcast. Look at that good-looking crew right there. Yeah, the, uh, <laughs> the, the Avengers or the Power Rangers, yes. somebody said on Twitter. <laughs> Yeah. (laughs) Oh, there it is again. (laughs) Yes. All right, guys. Thank you so much for watching, and we will see you. uh, We'll see you again. Always. (laughs) We're always here. Bye bye. Bye bye.